0: You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because... You're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io the engineer's choice for engineering talent if you like what you hear rate review and subscribe and follow us on twitter at the frontier pod hey jason good to have you here thanks for joining us
1: glad to be here ledge thank you
0: absolutely so hey would you mind uh tell us a little bit about yourself and uh your work and company and what you guys are doing
1: sure so i am the cto at gagalamp we're uh 25 person company. We build an app that lets other companies get their employees involved in their digital marketing. So if you have a thousand people and you want to get those, you want to spoon feed them content to share on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other networks online. Our applications make that process super easy for both your marketing team and the end end user employees in your company. And I came on as co founder with uh, our CEO Glenn Godette in 2011. We had. Uh, <laughs> We had just an idea, and um, my coding chops, and Glenn's selling ability, and we got the. We ended up bootstrapping the company. Thought we'd be venture funded. Uh, st- talked to some investors who didn't quite get the idea, but our customers really loved it. So we just focused on the customers, and we've been doing that for almost ten years now. And now on the on the product development side, we have a team of twelve. So three on the what I would call the product design team. So product management plus designers and, uh, nine engineers.
0: Wow. Okay, cool. Cool. So, all right. So you wrote all the initial code and now you had to, you know, grow a team of 12. What's, I mean, what's that like, man? Share some of the the stories on, on the way there, you know, that's, that's a pretty long journey.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of surprises along the way. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of luck finding people who were, doing freelancing previously and then giving them a really good environment to come work in so that's been mm-hmm. that's been our model is to try to find frustrated freelancers out there <laughs> and bring them we know about own. that yeah <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys do the uh, but yeah we just kind of were very pragmatic in our initial hiring so yeah, I was I'm a strong back-end developer I'm not the guy who can make it look pretty or and, and not the best one to be tweaking around HTML and don't have the patience to back in twenty eleven or <laughs> deal with the IE bugs and things like that. So our first <laughs> yeah our first hire was a, a front end engineer who's who's still with us, which is really cool. And yeah, we just wow. kinda kinda just plugged holes and then one day all of a sudden I was a manager. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, the, right. once you hit five or six people you start realizing you're spending more time uh helping other people and and doing quote unquote management. Than you are uh, coding on your uh, coding on your own.
0: Yeah, and I, I talk to a lot of, of tech leaders who kind of struggle to get out of the code, like don't want to. You know that um, that they really like doing the code, and you know, switching to a world of like coaching, mentoring. You know, uh, setting standards and doing code reviews and all that is is not rewarding. I guess you know, you did find it rewarding or at least, you know, rewarding enough, but, yeah, you know, how do you, um, how do you balance the two things?
1: For me, it was quite a calibration. And I think I've, I've gone too far off on both sides. So there was one point where I was, when we had, I think, seven or eight people and I had every Wednesday, I'd have 15 minute one-on-ones with the whole team and just mm-hmm. boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and that was the way I was trying to manage the team. And you just you can't even like this podcast we we talked for 15 20 minutes just to warm up ahead of time 15 minutes is not enough time to really have a a a growth-oriented coaching conversation with someone so i realized that model didn't work and then uh so it went down to less frequent one-on-ones and through the whole thing though I, i i still have a very strong passion for coding and i knew i had to segmented out where I would have some ability to do some coding but also giving the team what they need and then probably so it kind of went back and forth between doing less management and more coding and then more management over the years and then one of our I would say one of our key hires that helped me out a lot was getting a a solid product manager who also had experience in larger organizations and she was able to come in and and set up some really strong processes for us that'll really let us bring the team from about six, seven people up to 12 where we are now without the management side becoming too much of a headache. So now a lot of what I used to do in one-on-ones, we have you know, things like going through specific issues, talking about you know, implementation and design strategies is now handled by regular ceremonies that other team members are leading. So now when I, when I do have a one-on-one, I can focus on what I'm best at, which is just helping them talk through really tough problems or new technologies or other growth ideas that they have. I don't have to spend as much time getting in the weeds and in individual features. And then when I'm not doing the, the one-on- ones, I'm able to really focus on, on deeply on the projects that I want to be that, uh, that we're doing that I want, that I've chosen to focus on.
0: Do you, do you kind of switch hats? Like when you're, you know, I mean, everybody knows you're like the big boss man. Right. But I mean, if you're coding and you're a contributing member on the team, do you kind of sit back in a up and kind of be like, you know, Hey, I'm just another engineer. Like, do you have to like switch hats? Like how does everybody know it would be easy? I would think to like overwhelm a ceremony because like your ideas and opinions would get overweighted because you know, you're the man. Right. Um, do you have to be deliberate about that? Like, how do you accomplish it?
1: A lot of it's depends on the personalities of the team. So when there's, I think early on, we were smaller. It was kind of, it a lot of our meetings ended up being the Jason show (laughs) and I would be, I'd be driving everything, but we've built a culture where one of the key tenants is taking the initiative. So we want to have, we want to have, everyone step up and, and fill holes when when they see them and, and not wait for permission to do that. And now I feel like I get pushed out of ideas a lot in meetings where I'll, I'll bring up an argument and, and then two people will jump on me and you know, have six reasons that that's wrong and we need to try something else. <laughs> or we'll, we'll resolve to do, uh, you know, if it's like a design meeting, we might resolve to do an A-B test if, if I have a strong opinion and someone else has a strong opinion or someone else has a strong opinion. So I think I've been lucky where there's definitely the founder effect and the everyone wants to present good news to the boss but by having strong people who who've been in past organizations and have experience they know they know to push back on that and so the the focus is really on what's best for the company and what's best for the customer and not on implementing jason's vision (laughs) Uh, it's, it's definitely frustrating sometimes but it's Overall, I'm very thankful to have a team that yeah that treat me as you know Moses coming down from the mountain.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's true. Like your your vision got you know to a to a certain point, like that it was you know it's critically important. So you can't give that away entirely, right? It's like you know, hey, I innately know some things, and I I know some patterns and of thinking that you know matter. Uh, but you also need to have like the ego swallowing event of like getting out of the way. And this thing is going to evolve past me. I think every founder goes through that, you know, not just in engineering. Like if we want to grow this, it becomes not, you know, sort of just my thing anymore. Um, I'm curious, you know, up
1: having a, a lot of conversations along those lines of yeah, you know, getting too involved in something we're, we're going to end up being the bottleneck. So how do we,
0: how <laughs> we do we extract,
1: give that up or, or maybe it's something that's just not that important and we can we can leave it, you know, unmanaged for a period sure, of
0: time. Sure, sure. Yeah. I would imagine a, a good product manager sort of disposition is a, is going to lead you in the direction of, you know, sort of building for the customer anyway. So that's another reason that a hire like that, you know, is super important. It's also one of those things where you're kind of like, you know that's an expensive investment, like a person that focuses on product. Like, what does that mean? You know, we're engineers, like we can do this ourselves. Like we build the thing, Uh, you know, I don't know. What was that mindset like to, to understand that product, you know, is a, is a function. That's pretty hot now. You know, I don't think in the last couple of years that that is as mind blowing as it might've been, you know, some years ago.
1: From my experience, hiring that first product manager, it was a, a perfect example of getting the right person who then figured out what the role was, what I thought the role was. And I had, you know, I came from, I was freelancing before Gagalamp and hadn't worked in any other company before. So I didn't even really know what the product management function was or was supposed to do. So what I thought we needed was just someone to, to write requirements <laughs> and get things ready for the engineers. And it ended up being a lot more than that. Uh, plus, we brought in someone who I thought was really strong in the role and went above and beyond the role. So she was able to introduce a lot of other processes and and do things beyond just what, the, what a product manager would do.
0: One thing I've seen with product management is... Um particularly from a larger company disposition that there's a, there's a sort of dual role of what I would maybe call like delivery manager and product, you know, because that process stuff isn't the pure, you know, product manager kind of role that you read out of the, the textbook. That is all of that, like talk to the users and, you know, get all the feedback and write user stories and stuff, but, Oh no, don't let me touch all that process, you know, in scrum and ceremony stuff that would leave the scrum master to do that. So, you know, have you merged those, those worlds?
1: They were merged here for a mm-hmm. while. We experimented a couple times with getting a dedicated project manager, but we found that the, the thing, the activities that that person or that role we were, that we were expecting that role to do were really hard to do if you weren't a product manager or an engineer. So kind of having someone non-technical who was, at least for, for how we were approaching it, it didn't really work out. So what we've, what we've done is taken that, that release release management role, and it's, it's shared amongst our engineering team at this point. Oh, right on. So, but uh, that was one of the things that our product manager brings up a lot in, in conversations with me is she didn't want to be doing those activities because it's not her core skill set even though that's what the the company needed at the time. So you're still trying to figure out that balance. Now, uh, eventually we'll, we probably need some kind of dedicated head of engineering to work with our head of product, but Mm -hmm. we're not there today.
0: Yeah. 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 Cool. So yeah. I mean, what have you learned about scaling the product? You know, you're dealing with big clients. You got, um, a lot of, I guess, probably a lot of transactional work. Um, You want to talk about thousands and thousands of people and trying to get, you know, things done, you know, I don't walk through some of those like design decisions.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. The, our, our modus operandi is primarily to take feedback from customers and bring that into our product design. So we'll, we'll do a mock-up and then go have a conversation with four or five customers around it, uh, capture that feedback in our wiki, and then use that to inform the design process. And usually when we have a design meeting that goes off the rails where we're getting kind of, we're getting too focused on my new points, someone will raise their hand and say, Hey, let's go back and review the, the customer use case and make sure we're aligned there. Mm-hmm. So having that always referring back to the use case and the specific request of the customer has helped us make really good design decisions. The, the other thing that we've, that we decided to do, I think uh, about, 18 months now so we're, we're just uh, 18 months ago now that we're just starting to release is do a platform rewrite so we had this code base that I had written uh, you know, however many thousands of lines in 2011 and 2012 2013 mostly by myself <laughs> and then we brought in more engineers and we, we kept changing design preferences and just architecture willy-nilly you know it's kind of like we someone would watch a talk and we'd implement a pattern <laughs> so so we we started over with a we, there was some new functionality that we wanted to build, so we decided to start that as a new application rather than building it into our existing application, and that did slow down product development for a period of time, but it's going to give us a, a much better foundation to go forward for the next three to five years once that's, uh, once that's fully ready.
0: So we've had a lot of people talk about, you know, the trade-offs and, you know, monolith or microservice, or you, you sound like maybe you've landed somewhere between the two, or you're breaking off pieces of the application, but maybe not micro, micro, micro service. I don't know. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, we tried going down the microservices path. That was one of the architectural expeditions that we went on it. <laughs> and uh, just found that, there's more and more functionality that depended on copulins, and we wanted we ended up having to figure out APIs and and things that would have just been a single method call and a monolith. So decided to focus on the monolith, uh, and then with this, with wanting to start over with a new architecture, we have basically two monoliths that that talk to each other now.
0: How did you make we, that we, segmentation? Is that just a functional segmentation? Like it makes sense to have two. Applications.
1: Yes, it basically the the new functionality with the everything that goes along with that model view controllers stuff is in is in the is in the new application, but then it makes API calls and some new UI, but it makes API calls back to the to the old application, and I think eventually we may end up just bringing all of the old functionality into the new application and cutting mm-hmm. off those APIs, but as a as a time to market thing that made the most sense to have have the business logic already in the old application that we can reuse be accessible over APIs and then build the the net new functionality in the new application.
0: Right, right. So it was less of a like you know bog down the whole company in V2 and like a pragmatic choice to, you know, at least, hey, let's just separate out, allow ourselves to to use some old foundational work. But not be saddled with the entire old application there that's uh, interesting exactly yeah, and you talked about um, I guess you you made a move over the course of time to to cloud and now serverless love to hear best practices there like what what have you learned and and that you're on you're on Ruby so I don't hear Ruby and serverless all the time uh, so that's <laughs> an interesting story
1: so we actually we were I think AWS just released. Ruby support in November or October of last year. So we, we are just working on our first functions, I guess we could call them, in Ruby that we're gonna deploy on serverless. The For us, uh, the one place we do use sort of microservices is not really, we're not doing a lot of like microservices calling other microservices, but if there is some standalone functionality uh that just you know, does is highly decoupled we'll throw it into a function so for example we have some we have some report generation functionality for customers that wanted c- uh, custom data exports and that we've built into serverless functions because it 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 just calls the database generates some csvs and then pushes those to an, an external ftp server so rather than putting some code for one specific customer into our monolith, this we could just have in Lambda and it's totally separate. Don't have to worry about it breaking anything. And if it breaks, we know it only impacts that one customer. So for for use cases like that, the the isolation made a lot of sense.
0: Uh, so you don't have to fork your like main products. You can stay multi-tenant SaaS, but you can use serverless to introduce some like ancillary functions for exactly. a given client. And did you ever think then, like, I mean, maybe it doesn't happen, but you know, like, is serverless almost like the sandbox to allow you to test stuff out that you might roll back into the the monolith, or is it is it just like, hey, it's going to be out there forever?
1: Yeah, I haven't thought of it as a sandbox, but I mean, some of the reporting things we do for one client end up being useful for other clients. That's so possible. the The code that we've put in serverless is just highly, at least. Uh, the, the first functions were highly specific to one customer. Uh, so they basically ordered it as a, as a custom work order. So it made a lot of sense. And that that's, I would say in general, what we're using serverless for is, is some, some instance of moving data around, mm-hmm. whether it's sending it to an external system. We also use it to, to sync uh, some tables in the database. For example, there's one table that we sync between the old application and the new application and we use a serverless function to handle that ETL process.
0: Was it like a performance thing or like more just like easy abstraction or, I mean, what, why not do that as part of the normal application? Like, how did you decide what to put out there, you know, in that um, paradigm? In
1: in this case, we had some user, basically some user settings that we wanted to keep in the new application and the old application that both the old application's functionality and the new application's functionality depended on. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it, you know, as we looked at the use case, the having the, the sync process made the most sense. Uh, and it was, since it's specific to one user, uh, and it's, it's kind of the, it's part of the setup and onboarding. It just, it made more sense than calling back out to that, calling out to that table over an API.
0: Right, right, okay, yeah. Did you when you made the new application, did you have to deal with like a totally new data model too, where you have to kind of ETL yourself then during that process?
1: Uh, so w- the one place we do have a sort of microservice is our sing. We have a single sign-on server, so that handles at least over OAuth handles setting up user accounts in both systems. Hmm. So we had the the ability of a user to log in without needing to set up an ETL was already was already set up through the single sign on server. So other than that that one table for user settings that I was just talking about, we haven't done any other ETLs. Everything's either only in one application, only in the other or accessible over an API.
0: Right on, right on. So what you learn from the the customer like feedback process, you know that that's I don't know, tips and tricks, you know, from Finding out from customers. I mean, one thing we always know is like every customer has an opinion. Like, how do you know which things are worth rolling into your product or not? You know, I mean, they're going to tell you to do all the things they want, um, and every customer has a different opinion. So, you, like, how do you do a signal to noise, you know, analysis on that?
1: I don't know if we have any general. <laughs> any, I guess on, at the very general level, we have a we have a community board where. Yeah, you know, it's like a feature request board where people can vote up ideas, hmm. and the we look at the top ideas every quarter. So that's a place where we're looking for multiple customers asking for a feature. There's you know, then there's always the situation of a salesperson just needs this one feature to close a deal that comes up. Uh, we're selling to enterprises, so you know, usually they have three to five things that they want customized. So we, we handle those requests. You know, we, we build in some time in our schedule every quarter to handle those requests. And if there if there gets to be too many of them, then we push back on the sales team and kind of force them to do the prioritization for us. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then there's there's some. It's funny. Like almost, almost every kind of design decision you make that limits the functionality uh, as you scale, you're going to find someone who wants the opposite. So, you know, for example, one that came up recently is we have a a leaderboard functionality where when the when marketing puts a piece of content in our system, the and the members then share it, they get a certain number of points. Well, we added a reset feature to that that would turn off the, the basically, you know, the idea is you reset the leaderboard back to zero when you click the reset button. So that if they want to do like a monthly contest, they can reset it. And we have a contingent of customers that want just like a pure reset. And then we have others that if there's something that's alive in our system that's available to share before and after the reset time, then it becomes unfair because the members who already shared it got their points zeroed out. But then the members who didn't share it yet can still get points for those messages. So it makes the the whole system unfair. And we end up with, <laughs> we're now, we implemented it the way where if uh, if something was live in the system before you hit reset, nobody can get points on the leaderboard after the reset uh, for that thing, even though they shared it at time after the leaderboard reset because of the fairness argument. But now we're having customers come back and say, well, I just wanted to reset. And I didn't care about this fairness point. So it's, you know, you're always, you're going to be constantly surprised in any, any sort of, any sort of limitation that we put in, even for a fairness reason or gamification reason, someone comes up and doesn't like it. So <laughs> we try to, you know, we try to model Ruby on Rails with configuration or convention over configuration. But a lot of times, what the customer really wants is is configuration and wants a, a more complex set of options so that they can better fit their use case. So that's that's uh, that's some place we balance a lot: is how much flexibility do we give versus how much do we just make it have one way to do it. And you know, the customers have to take it or leave it that way.
0: Well, I'll leave, and I'll leave that, uh, as our, our final thought that, uh, you know, you only need to deal with this problem once you have customers that are so passionately debating about your product. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> It's a good problem to have. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't go out of your way to, you know, sort of do all these things at the beginning. You know, once you have, uh, customers that have an opinion, you, you know, you have customers for the long term. So, That's a good thing. Well, Jason, hey, good spending time with you, man. Love the insights and uh, we'll be paying attention.
1: Yep. Uh, Thanks for the time, Ledge. It's great to meet you. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gunio slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.